I'm Bernard Stein. Uh, I grew up in Riverdale in an apartment house that is maybe two blocks from where we are now, which is a private house in Fieldston. Uh, and I graduated from science in 1959. PS81, where I went to elementary school, was a K through eight school. So I was a ninth grader at science. That was a very small group of people, relatively speaking. And then it got much bigger when uh, the junior high school kids came and we went to what we called the main building. Mm -hmm. I don't have real memories of the first day, but I do remember that those of us who were in the annex um, kind of formed a cadre, mm -hmm. many of whom stayed close uh, yeah. through, through our high school career. So in those first days or that first year, let's say, um, where were the spaces in the school where you felt most comfortable, your kind of corners or secret spots? I don't know that I had such things. Mm. I was pretty uncomfortable that first year. It was a very new and different kind of experience for me. And throughout my time at science, uh, I felt pretty alienated. Mm. It was a hyper-competitive place. It was a place that where they made you feel dumb, mm. or at least made me feel dumb. And I think others shared that experience. Then I was also, you know, I was 14, going through all of that adolescent stuff. Yeah. So those two things together, uh, I don't think I had a special place that I enjoyed being when I was at school. Mm. When you say uh, they made you feel, who are you thinking of when you say that? Well, I think it was the culture of the place. And the culture yeah. of the place came from the top and from the faculty. So let's go into the classroom. For better or for worse, who are a couple teachers or classes that stick out in your mind? Well, the class that all I would say kind of saved me <laughs> was Science Survey, which is the school paper. If you were on the staff, you were for two years, you were in a combined social studies and English class. And Leonard Mannheim, the teacher of that class, was just superb then. Mm. Um, one of those stories that you hear about that generation of teachers. He was a lawyer. His wife was taking the teacher exam and she was a poor test taker. <laughs> he told us this story. And so he went and took the test along with her. And this was the middle of the depression. When he got his teacher's license, he abandoned the law and started teaching. And he was a lovely man, very smart, treated us with great respect. And I think everybody in that class really adored him when we had some sort of reunion. It wasn't the big reunion, but there was some sort of reunion. He had died mm. the year before. And everyone who was in that class, since I was the editor of the science survey, turned to me and said, you have to get up and say something about Doc, which is what we call yeah. him. He's Dr. Mannheim. He was just an interesting man. And he kind of helped unlock um, my love of literature, which is something that then, you know, followed me for the rest of my life. Yeah. Do you remember what it was about uh, the newspaper specifically and beyond just him, but the, the kind of nuts and bolts of learning that form that excited you initially? Was it something you'd thought about before? Oh, well, see, I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have printer's ink in my veins. <laughs> I was raised to be a, a journalist. My father... His whole career was in journalism. He founded the Riverdale Press in 1950, mm. the newspaper that covers this community in the Northwest Bronx. My first byline 
in the Riverdale Press was when I was eight, a mm-hmm. uh, report on a Cub Scout meeting. So I didn't have to learn the form yeah. uh, from being on survey. I was raised to be the editor of a, of a newspaper. I was the editor of the PS81 live wire. Uh, I was the editor. We had a, a, a newspaper, a sort of mimeograph newspaper in that ninth grade at, uh, at the annex. And I was the editor of it. Mm. I was the editor of the survey. Uh, and then I rebelled. And when I went to college, I did not join the newspaper staff. I decided I wasn't going to be a journalist. Um, I was going to study literature and I was going to teach in college. Spent 14 years in Berkeley, California. Uh, came back took over the Riverdale Press. And when I left the Riverdale Press, became I left because Hunter College recruited me and I became a professor. Yeah. So all those years later, I came <laughs> back around. Um, so I'm thinking about, you know, I, and I know science is a little bit outside the the borders of the beat mm-hmm. uh, that the Riverdale, the Riverdale Press covered yeah. that your dad founded. But, you know, it, it's close. And when you write about a place, especially from a journalistic lens, you get this really interesting relationship with the geography, the culture, the places, mm-hmm. the, the physical space. Thinking now about that trip to science or the four years you spent there, do you think that that time helped you understand this region better? I really don't. Mm-hmm. I was so wrapped up in my, my adolescent self. Mm-hmm. In Riverdale, there are two kinds of kids. There are the kids whose relationships are in Riverdale and the kids who discover Manhattan. (laughs) And I was a kid who discovered Manhattan. Sounds familiar. Uh, (laughs) What I really learned was was Manhattan. I mean, we would go down to um, the Dunnell Library was our big hangout on 53rd Street. Mm -hmm. Um, The uh, Museum of Modern Art was right across the street. The Museum of Modern Art was either free or cost a pittance at that time. So we could go there, you know, not like today. A kid could just go and just, you know, walk around and look at the stuff. And then, you know, we'd find a place to get coffee or soda and and sit and talk. I was looking at our yearbook just before you arrived. And one of the things that struck me uh, anew was that a huge proportion of the student body in my class was from the Bronx. Yeah. The, The changing demographics of the school were one of the things that was most striking to me when I first set foot back as the editor of the Riverdale Press, as mm-hmm. I say, after years of avoiding going into the building. Um, first of all, so much more diverse. I, uh, if, if there were five or six black people in my class, that was a lot. And I don't think I knew what a Puerto Rican was. And there were a couple of Puerto Rican students in the class, but at least some of them didn't say that. Yeah. They, they just stayed undercover if their yeah. skin was light enough. And you know, no sense of nationalism or of, of Puerto Rican pride that they expressed openly yeah, around us. Um, and the other thing was the school was so sterile. We were the first class in the new building. Yeah. And it was, you know, like a cherished artifact. that couldn't <laughs> get fingerprints on it. And so going back, I was so pleased to see posters and leaflets up on the walls and a sense of life, you know. Yeah. So in those ways, I think the school has probably changed for the better. Yeah. But uh, the demographic change is, is absolutely striking. And I gather that uh, the student body now comes largely from Queens. Yeah. So I want to go back into the building from when you were there. Uh, you talked a little bit about some of the challenges that it presented for you or some of your feelings about the place not being positive. And mm-hmm. I want to 
give a little bit of a space if you if you want to go there and just kind of talk about where that feeling came from for you or how you think about it now. What was it that it may be in addition to the competitiveness that just didn't work for you? Well, I wasn't a self-confident person, no. um, although I'm not sure that others looking at me back then would have said the same thing about me. I think I had a good front mm. and I hated the sciences. I was <laughs> notorious for writing an editorial in the survey that said that Bronx science shouldn't specialize in science. Uh, and I did some reporting and found out that even if you counted physicians, only about 20 or 25% of graduates became scientists. Right. And uh, Morris Meister, who was the founding principal of Bronx science, apparently hit the roof when he <laughs> saw this editorial and went to Alexander Taffel, then the principal, screaming. Uh, <laughs> about it. And so I heard about that. Um, so there was that sense of, you know, here I'm in this place that's making me take these classes that I do poorly in and have no interest in. There was, as I said, this, this sense of competitiveness. I remember kids crying when they got 795 on the SATs out of 800. Yeah. And even though I was somebody who discovered Manhattan through science, I still was intimidated by the Manhattan kids mm. who seemed so sophisticated to me. And there was another group, the Beatniks and the Socialists, uh, who I also admired and thought, you know, were miles of, of, above me in terms of intellectual mm. interest and accomplishment. So, you know, I thought I was very inferior to, to each of those groups. Yeah. So that certainly contributed to my sense of alienation from from the place. Mm. Uh, but also it really was the culture of the place. It did not encourage people to work collectively. Mm. It pitted people against one another. One of the things that Mannheim didn't do was that. Mm. Um, and there was also a ton of general oppressiveness, almost a hangover from the McCarthy period, I think. At the paper, for example, there was a absolutely terrific guy, Scott Gillum, who was a conscientious objector or intended to be a conscientious objector. And he was on the survey staff and he wanted to write an op-ed piece about it. And the word came down that that was not to happen. Poor Dr. Mannheim, who was terrified of the blacklist. Mm. He, he identified himself as a sort of mild socialist, but had gone through the McCarthy period and was absolutely terrified that he was going to be single, he was going to be fired. I had to write a sort of patriotic counterpiece. And so you can do it as a two sides of the coin. Yeah. Write something that I did not fully believe, yeah, but that I did in order for Scott to be able to publish his piece. But that is a kind of example of the general sense of oppression that the place offered yeah. uh, at the time. And um, that came from very much from the top, I think. For people like me, the apolitical people, it was a lesson. Right. Uh, that's how we learned yeah. how how oppressive um, that mindset could be. Yeah. And you know, we're the generation that then goes on to be part of the civil rights movement, right. the anti-war, the anti-Vietnam War movement, the campus movement. I was right. very much part of that, and my classmates. It's really interesting, I think, to look at. You know, the big men on campus at Bronx Science, right? There's 
um, Bob Ross and Todd Gitlin. Yeah. Todd was valedictorian and Bob was, I think, vice president, either the senior class or in the student body, I forget which. They both went to the University of Michigan where they became among the founders of Students for a Democratic Society. Yeah. Denny Morrow, the captain of the swimming team, this handsome, immensely popular guy, becomes part of the Fort Hood Three, the first soldiers to refuse to go to Vietnam, hmm. court-martialed for that. And Denny also is one of those people who, he became a um, vigorous Puerto Rican nationalist. Yeah. Though at science, I don't think he ever said a word about his heritage, hmm. and nobody, at least I certainly wasn't yeah. aware of that heritage. Um, and I'm one of the founders of Berkeley SDS. Mm. Uh, I was arrested in the free speech movement, what was up to that time the largest mass arrest on a college campus in the United States, and you know went on to be a part of the anti-war and the and the civil rights movement uh, yeah. and the student movement at Berkeley. Right behind us comes the goalie on the soccer team, Stokely yeah. Carmichael. He was the goalie on the soccer team. <laughs> he was the team. goalie on the soccer team. <laughs> the legend was, I don't know if it's true, but the legend was that he once beat up the entire DeWitt Clinton soccer team at the back of the number 20 bus. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And he was also a rebel back then, too. There was a famous assembly where Alexander Taffel, the principal, was going on and says, dry fashion and Stokely started rolling marbles down the <laughs> aisle of the auditorium until finally tapping what is going on here? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and Stokely, if you read um, his his memoirs, has interesting things to say about his experience mm. in prog science. For sure. Yeah. You know, just from talking to other people who graduated around your year, kind of the ever-present threat of <laughs> Ending up at war. Oh yeah. As a, you know, there's the macro, and then there's the personal, yeah, the micro. No, absolutely no. In fact, I'll tell you another story about this guy, Scott Gillum. Yeah. He was the mildest, sweetest guy. I, I who you know you could never imagine him telling somebody to go to hell. <laughs> but we had these duck and cover things. I don't remember now whether this was in the main building or whether this was in the the annex in ninth grade. It might have been in the annex. And one of the things you were supposed to do was close the shades. So when the windows got blown out, the flying glass supposedly wasn't going to come into the classroom. The teacher asked Scott, please, to go and close the shades. And he said, no, huh. I'm not doing it. I'm not taking part in this. That was a major eye opener. I wrote about it later. I wrote an editorial in the Riverdale Press mm. recalling it. So yeah, there was that ever-present kind of fear of war. Any last thoughts or stories or just ideas about the place that you want to make sure get included in this? What I was delighted by when I finally did go back was my sense of the place as not only diverse, but more cheerful. Mm. Uh, now, you know, I was an outsider, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I did have that sense. Uh, and, and I think that's a very good thing. Mm.